Richard, Sicily, 2.0, where we cover all crime. I'm, as always, your host, the great white snark, Scotty J. Across from me is the lovely and twisted Monica. Hi. Looks like she's flexing. She. Yeah. Yeah, we were. Conversation yeah. we had. Oh, I think we should address this before we get into the show. Okay. Um, as those of you know, we like to update you on true crime things. Well. Oh, yeah, her. Mm-hmm. Monica and I are at cross per at cross ideas over the release of Leslie Van Howe. Yeah, major. I think this is our first like we've been like yeah no we're like our first complete like. Well, I. <laughs> she's done everything that is required was required of her to except get parole, die. except die right. Charlie, that was the first requirement, which they Charlie Charlie did that in uh, Atkins. Yes. So Charlie and Atkins died. Is Squeaky Fromm still alive? Yeah, they she got out because like, she wasn't part of the murders. Right, but she tried to assassinate Gerald Ford. Yes, but again, got lucky. In the exact same week that someone <laughs> else tried to assassinate Gerald Ford. Mm-hmm. But what the and the what it said like supposedly the gun wasn't loaded or blanked or like something with her. No, I I the first person I tried to shoot for the gun wasn't the either the gun misfired or the gun wasn't loaded, but Secret Service got to her. Yeah. With with Squeaky, they saw the gun sticking up and then they got her. Uh-huh. Because the secret server is like, we can't fail twice in the same week, folks. Okay, you know, come on, we're we're, we're getting paid here. Yeah. But Van Leslie Van Houten, she did everything that she was that was required of her at the time that she was sentenced. And I think now, I I can. If you can only see what was going on, folks. I am uh, a little flustered. <laughs> right. I I think under the, the terms of the original sentencing, they were supposed to go to, to death row. Yes. But then California abolished the death penalty and put them on life with the possibility of parole. Which I said it should have just, they should have changed it. I think they did. Too life with no parole and then they changed it back to death row so then it should have been switched back again well so they didn't they should have been life with no parole i mean right but she's in a halfway house um i think the conditions of her pro i I would love to see the conditions one don't contact any member of the manson family not too many left they're Mm -hmm. all in prison 
Um, can't contact the Tate family. I don't see her doing that. But she was more involved with the La Bianca, so she can't contact anyone. It's like when um the guy that shot Reagan, Hinckley. Yeah, because Mark David Chapman shot Lennon. John Hinckley shot Reagan. I always get those two confused. But when Hinckley got parole, he was told he couldn't contact any member of the Reagan family. And I'd have been like, no problem. Mm -hmm. Don't want to talk to him. So we will see how this 70-year-old woman adjusts to life on the outside. Yeah. Well, it's like I've been to Lino's grave. Oh, LaBianca, yeah. Yeah. So, and I've been to Sharon Tate's several times. The first time was actually in 92. And I've been to Stephen Parent's grave. And in this last trip, I've Bugliosi's visited him. So, it's just, there's something about, you know. Right. Like, being there and seeing it. So, actually, the first, I saw Sharon Tate's, her original stone. Because now her mom and her sister are there, too. I... You know, when I go up to Wisconsin every year for my family's Drunken Fest, which is going to be interesting this year, I'm not far from Plainfield, Wisconsin, where Ed Gein habitated. Yeah, so you have to go there. I've been wanting to. I've been wanting to take a little side trip over to Plainfield just to see where Gein was. And I might have to give you a bow to have have you mail him back to me, like take him. Up the playing field. I'm going to, I'll double check before I come out next week. Yeah, because I'll double, double check the, the, the right. Because that'd be pretty cool. Right. All right, folks, we got a good one for you this week. Um, I don't know. I, I seem to have a thing for kidnapping cases because I find them interesting. And Probably because. Well, probably because I was kidnapped myself, so. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, duh. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Brain, like, oops. Yeah, forgot. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in a good kidnapping case, and this, this is a good one. It, it. I remember hearing this on another podcast, and it took me forever to try to find it. Mm-hmm. But I found it. Internet, yes. internet searches, be damned. We are going to talk about the Brookhart kidnapping. Now, 1933, we're we're jumping back in time here a little bit. 1933, 22-year-old Brookhart was heir to one of San Jose, California. San Jose. They're the library system that I had the problems with. With all the labels and everything and... He was uh, the heir to one of San Jose, California's best-known businesses, the L. Hart & Son Department Store, located at the southeast corner of Market and San Clara Street. Brooks' grandfather and the store's namesake, Leopold Hart, was in... Okay, I'm going to mess this up because I don't know where this country is. Alsatian? That's it. Alsatian immigrant who bought a mercantile shop 
which was known as the Cash Corner in 1866. After Leopold's son, Alex J. Hart Sr. took over the business and expanded to the landmark status it held in San Jose for four decades, becoming as much a part of the fabric of the cities as Macy's was in New York City or Neiman Marcus was in Dallas. And I'm going to add another one here. Jason, no, uh, Sears and Roebuck in Chicago. Or John Wanamaker's in Philadelphia. Oh, nice. Give, give yourself a little plug there. Nice. Or the Strawbridge and Clothier there, too, and all. Do they, um, are they still in business? Nope. No. No, neither is uh, Sears and Roebuck. Uh, Montgomery Ward. Yeah, don't even get me uh, Chicago, now. too. Mm -hmm. Um, here's boo. I, I actually in downtown Chicago, you can go by the uh, I think it's the Montgomery Ward building. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, oh, Macy's is in it now. The Hart store was famous for its attentive customer service and benefited from, benefited from the deep loyalty of customers and employees alike. When the country found itself in the grip of the Great Depression, Hart held on to its central place in the lives of San Jose citizens and continued to buy advertising in local publications. The family was one of the city's most prominent, and their influence was the source of many colorful stories. One such tale recounts that the artist who painted the ceiling of the Cathedral Basilica in St. Joseph in 1920 modeled the cherub's in his work on the family's children. We don't know who that artist is. He has lost his. Brookhart worked in his family's department store during much of his youth and was well known and liked by the local community. After he graduated from Santa Clara University, his father, AJ, made him a junior vice president and began to groom him to take over when he retired. How would you like to be working in that department store? Here you are. You've worked your way up. You think you're going to get the, the VP seat. And then the boss comes and goes, my son's taking over as VP. I think we've been pretty much known like with that company anyway. So it wouldn't have been too much of a huge right. anyway. But still, you would have been like, mother. It's like the Maury's here. Okay. Yeah, so, same thing. Now, just before 6 p.m. on Thursday, November 9th, 1933, Brooke retrieved his 1933 Studebaker President Roadster. Now, that's a car. It's a Studebaker. <laughs> right. I mean, now, now to, to kind of give a little preference here, there was a um, like a period of time in the 1930s when kidnapping was the rage. Mm -hmm. You know, you could go in, kidnap someone, ransom them, get the ransom. And the majority, and I'm I'm saying the majority, so like 95% of the time, they were returned unharmed. Because it, it, it was bad for business to ransom someone, then kill them, then ask, you know, get the money and then find out your kids kid your yeah. kids been murdered. You're not going to give money for the second kid. Right. right. 
man, I almost did a, almost did a, a little um, Austin Powers gold member joke there. Because, you know, they're talking about kidnapping, kidnapping the kid for ransom, and then he dies. Leopold and Loeb. Yeah, that just died. Just like the Love Guru. You've never seen the Austin Power movies? I've seen them, but it's like Gold Member's like the worst one. So it's like I've seen it like once, and that was it. Oh, I, I love that movie. There, there's a great line. The the whole you know, um the whole C B thing when he's he's leaving with preparation H is Alex and I quote the movie constantly. Okay, so he um, he basically oh, sorry. So just before 6 p.m. on Thursday, November 9th, 1933, Brookhart retrieved this 1933 Studebaker President Roadster, which was a graduation present from his parents, which is, this is a pretty sweet present. From a downtown San Jose parking lot behind a department store. Now he had agreed to chauffeur his father, AJ, who didn't drive. And uh, in most cases, they didn't. Uh, drive his father to a meeting of the Chamber of Commerce at the San Jose Country Club. Now when Brooke did not turn up to collect his father, AJ became concerned. As the hours passed, there remained no sign of Brooke the Hart family's anxiety grew. Brooke was responsible. Brooke was responsible and punctual, and his absence was entirely out of character. AJ confessed his worry to Perry Belshaw, the manager of the country club, during dinner. After Brooke's friend phoned to say the younger Hart had missed an appointment at eight, AJ called the police to determine if his son had been involved in an accident. According to the parking lot attendant, Brooke had left the lot heading east on Santa Clara Avenue at 6.05 p.m. He was later spotted around 6.30 p.m. by a Hart store employee at Santa Clara and 14th. Finally, a rancher in Milpitas, seven miles north of San Jose, saw a man matching Hart's description standing alone <clears throat> next to an automobile on Evans Lane at approximately 7 p.m. When the rancher returned, he saw the car still parked there at approximately 8.30 p.m. with no one else present. Dun, dun, dun. Yep. I was just about to say that, but thank you. <laughs> at 9.30 that night, Elise Hart, the older of Brooke's two younger sisters, answered the telephone at the family home and was informed by a, quote, soft-spoken man that Hart had been kidnapped and that instructions for his return would be provided later. At 10.30, what sounded like the same man called and informed the older, oh, sorry, other sister, Miriam, that her brother would be returned upon payment of $40,000, which was basically equivalent to $916,960 in 2022 money. Delivery instructions would be provided the next day. According to phone company records, the kidnappers had tried to reach the hard home three times, but the line was busy 
before they are finally connected. In the days before call waiting. I think th there might have been a way back then if you were talking to, because back then it was like, I this break it, they had the operator break in. Right. Why didn't they just do that? Right. Yeah. Um, operator, I'd like to have you break into this phone call, please. Yeah. Belshaw lived near the site where the Studebaker had been parked and reported the abandoned car in Milpitas to the police at 11 p.m. It was positively identified as Brooks. The San Jose Police Department, the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office, and the U.S. Division of Investigation, which is, well, was the forerunner of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, were quickly brought into the case. The phone calls were traced to locations in San Francisco. The call that connected was traced to the Whitcomb Hotel. However, the search initially focused on the hilly region surrounding Calaveras Dam and the city of Oakland. The call's origin was thought to be a decoy action. Hart's wallet was discovered in San Fran on the guardrail of the tanker Midway, which had been refueling the Matson Lines passenger liner, the SS Lurleen. Well, I can't I can't see that name without thinking about the Simpsons episode. Lurleen Lumpkin, country singer. When Homer was her manager. Classic one. What? That's a classic. Oh, it is. Um, Olivia D'Angelo voiced her. Yeah. Okay, so both ships were docked at Pier 32 from midnight to 5 a.m. It was assumed the wallet had been tossed from a porthole on the liner. Lurleen was stopped and searched in Los Angeles when it arrived there on its way to Honolulu on November 11th, but nothing was found. Police then advanced an alternative theory, since Pier 32, from which the Lurleen had departed, was close to the sewer outfall, the heavy-laden tanker might have dipped below the surface and picked up the wall from where it had been, where it had been discharged from the sewer, lifting it from the bay once a sufficient amount of fuel had been offloaded. I can see that. One of the passengers detained during the three-hour search was Babe Ruth, the famed baseball player who was traveling to Los Angeles to watch a football game between Southern California and Stanford. At the time, the Oakland Tribune named Charles Pretty Boy Floyd a suspect in the kidnapping as he was reportedly present in California. Floyd was later spotted in Almaden near abandoned Quicksilver mine shafts. While searching for Floyd or Hart at the time, don't know which, a man claiming to be Floyd boarded a bus in Modesto and robbed passengers using a gun. That doesn't sound like Pretty Boy Floyd's tactic. No. He was a I'm bank like robber. Just, yeah. Like, yeah, I... For just, a period of, and you think they'd know, like, dude, you're ugly. You're not Pretty Boy. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to say it was a nickname. Like baby yeah, face. It was a, yeah, it was a nickname. But I'm like saying, you know, like yeah, right. He was an ugly man, or they called him pretty boy. Yeah. Well, it, it was like uh baby face Nelson. He went to rob a bank, and the teller was like, Oh, you have such a baby face. Yeah, and it but, stuck. Yeah, it was pretty boy, yeah. Um it wasn't I, actually I, a baby. <laughs> it wasn't like off the 
what was it, like from Who Framed Roger Rabbit it was oh <laughs> yeah 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 so. love that movie uh -huh. I uh I when I was growing up I I had a thing for mobsters I, I tried to study as many as I could I still do I've got like three books and four books actually I keep tossing around an idea about doing a, a mob history podcast but I just haven't done it yet I need problem is is I need more books which I should go out to the Baldwin Book Barn sometime and do some searching. I guess you could do it on your way back now. I could. Something yet, so we could stop over. Right. Well, I'm I'm trying to plot my way back. I don't know if I'm going to go up to Gettysburg or down to Virginia to the battlefields I missed. And Montpelier, too, since it's open all all week now. But I don't need any more books on Madison. I have enough. Still feeling there. I would go down to Virginia. You would? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. Now, the Hart family chartered an airplane to look for cabins in the hills near Milipas. Starting on November 12th, Following a theory that Brooke had been first lured to the area where his car was abandoned, and the kidnappers then took him from there. Because the car's headlights were left on, and there were signs of a scuffle, authorities believe Brooke had been overpowered in millipitas. In addition, witnesses who had seen Brooke driving the Studebaker said he was alone, although in some cases visibility was poor. Now, a compromise ransom telegram from Sacramento arrived on November 12th, suggesting that 20 grand, which is equivalent to 452,000, would be sufficient. <laughs> I'm laughing, folks, because the idea that, okay, we're not going to get this money, so let's knock it down about 20 grand here. It's like they're trying to bargain the deal down, you know? Try to get a better deal for a, a kidnapping. However, the family was not contacted again until Monday, November 13th, when a letter postmarked in Sacramento arrived in the mail at the department store. It instructed AJ to have a radio installed in the Studebaker, which already had a radio, because the ransom instructions would be broadcast over NBC radio station KPO. Sounds like they're trying to, all right, caller, between 10 and 3, call in with the correct answer and you can win tickets to Aerosmith. Man, I remember when radio stations did that. You know, the kidnapper also instructed AJ to be ready to drive the Sudabaker to deliver the ransom, but AJ never learned how to drive. So that was kind of defeating the purpose there. On November 13th, A.J. posted a $5,000 reward for his son's safe return with a promise to drop any further investigation upon his return. To emphasize the validity of the reward offer, police announced they would not be tracing calls to the Hart residence. However, this was a ruse to entrap the kidnappers because the phone line continued to be tapped. Um, kidnappers... We're not tapping the phone. 
Click, 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 click. Right. <laughs> On Tuesday, November 14th, a second ransom note arrived, this time postmarked in San Francisco, and instructed AJ to place the ransom in a black satchel and drive to Los Angeles. That night, AJ took a call from a man claiming to be his son's kidnapper who instructed him to take the night train to Los Angeles. The authorities staked out the train station and mistakenly arrested a bank teller out for an evening stroll. This goes to show. Don't yeah, go jogging. Don't like go for don't a walk. Go jogging at night. Don't go out yeah. for a stroll. Yeah. The next day, a sign was placed in the window of the heart store stating that AJ did not drive. How embarrassing. I'm too worried what the sign drive. looked like. I want to see what the sign looked like. Big letters. AJ does not drive. Yeah. People According, driving by the stores like, what? what's that? AJ uh-huh. doesn't drive. That's not news. A call was received that night again demanding that Hart drive to deliver the ransom. Hart demanded proof that his son was with the caller. The caller stated that Brooke was being held at a safe location. Right. Because They're the always safe. Had been placed on the Hart telephone. The call was traced to a garage in downtown San Jose, but the caller was gone by the time the authorities arrived. Another demand arrived the following day, November 16th, again ordering AJ to drive with a ransom. The dude does not drive. Why won't he drive the car? That night, another call was received, and the demand that AJ, I should be laughing, but oh my God. The demand that AJ drive was repeated. The call was, it's like, dude, just like, I'm sure you'll be, like, have somebody sitting next to you. It's like learning, right? Well, I mean, Rain Man knew how to drive. Yeah, I mean, hello. But I mean, just have somebody sitting next to him that knows how to drive. Right. You know? Okay. Or somebody could follow him, give him a little quick lesson here, you know? Either that or you have the guy sitting next to him with his his foot across the way on the gas and brake. Yeah, I mean... Or wait, was a student... Did they have automatic transmissions then? They probably didn't. So yeah, that would take a while to learn anyway. Well, you'd have to, like, one foot figure out how to work the clutch and the brake and... Yeah, it would be basically a game of Twister. <laughs> oh, man. Try explaining that to the cops when you get pulled over. Well, I think they would understand at this point. Yeah, if it was being... Okay. Um, oh, no, they had automatics in 1921. And you know he could afford it. So buy a damn car, learn. Thank you. Done. Man. Uh, the- it was designed in 21 and patented in 23. Yeah, we're just solving all the problems of the world here. That's what we do. <laughs> the call was traced to a payphone in a parking garage at Market near San Antonio, and Police Chief J.N. Black and Sheriff William Amig hurried to the scene just 150 feet from the San Jose Police Station, where they arrested Thomas Harold Thurmond as he was hanging up at about 8 p.m. Yay! They did something right. Yep. At 8 3 at, oh, at, at 3 a.m., Thurmond, after hours of questioning, signed a confession in which he claimed to have bound Brooks' hands with wire 
and tossed him off the San Mateo Bridge into San Francisco Bay sometime between 7 and 7.30 on the night of the kidnapping. They always like kidnapped, but they never just keep yeah. him. He also identified an accomplice, John Holmes, not the porn star, a recently unemployed salesman who was separated from his wife and two children. You Holmes beat was to the joke. In, yeah. In his SRO home at the right. hotel near the San Jose police station at 3.30 a.m., according to Thurman's confession. Holmes approached him with the scheme six weeks prior after he had separated from his family. If you're living in an SRO, which I have done, you need money. And back then, a single room occupancy was probably a quarter. Mm-hmm. Well, but you know, that, little pocket money, you know, little. Right. But if, if he just left his wife and kids, oh, she, oh, he needs money. Well, yeah. There you go. Women are not cheap. Well, some are, but. We're not talking about them women. (laughs) At 1 p.m. on November 17th, Holmes signed a confession admitting that he and Thurman had kidnapped Brooke and thrown him into the San Francisco Bay. Yeah, we did it. We're sorry. Later, the Santa Clara County District Attorney advised the press that, unless corroborated by independent evidence, confessions by Thurman and Holmes in which each blamed the other for the crime, as always happens, were not admissible in a court of law. That, so, that this, sounds familiar. Who 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 like have we covered? <laughs> who have we covered that tried to pin the blame on each other? Leopold and Loeb. And pretty much everybody else is a right. Any other true crime broadcast? <laughs> right. Ever? <laughs> In his confession, Holmes stated that Thurman had come up with the plan. A couple of days before the kidnapping, we went to a show. On the way out, he grabbed my arm and said, There goes Brookie Hart. If we pick him up, we can get a nice piece of change. Why do they, like, everybody always, like, hoodlums back in the 30s, too. Okay, you you were just getting uh, prohibition is ending. Um, Hollywood is glamorizing gangsters on the film. So everybody has to. Right, everybody wants to be a mobster. I guess I shouldn't be talking though, since I basically quoted um, "Clueless" every day of my life in high school. So I'll just be quiet now. Because um, <laughs> I mean, look at Dillinger, Dillinger, who's on who's on my list. I mean, Dillinger was shot coming out of a gangster flick. At the Biograph in Chicago, so gangsters were popular. In Thurman's earlier confession, he stated Holmes made the decision to murder Brooke. Thursday afternoon, November 9th, I went to Merritt's plumbing shop and bought three bricks for 10 cents each and 55 cents worth of wire to make preparations to kidnap Brooke Hart. I don't know whether Holmes planned to murder the boy at that time but at any rate, we wanted to be prepared. According to the men's confessions, when Brooks stopped his car near the exit of the parking lot in the evening of November 9th, Thurman slipped into the passenger seat and holding a gun on him, forced Brooke to drive to Milpitas. There, they abandoned the Studebaker 
for another waiting car, which had been driven to the rendezvous point by Holmes, and the group of three drove to the San Mateo Bridge. Man, they didn't even give me any time to even... Man, they... No. They just, like, pulling out... You need, like, a live body for ransom to... Sorry. Okay. No, it's like they, he hops in the car. Hi, you're being kidnapped. Drive to the here. Yeah. Now, a mother and daughter on a farm immediately south of Milpitas had seen a dark, long-hooded sedan with three men stopped near their barn. A few minutes later, after a stop, a convertible, which was presumably the Studebaker Roadster, with three men, two on the running boards and one driving, oh, that had to be funny to see, stopped near the sedan. Their description of the man driving the convertible of the convertible, slender with light-colored hair, matched the description of Brooke as did the convertible of his as his, as did the convertible was of his car. Brooke was driven away in a larger car. According to the farmers, one of the group followed in the Studebaker. The mother did not report the events until the following Monday, which was November 13th, when she was visiting relatives and learned about the kidnapping. Um, Mildred saw something weird out there the other day. Yeah, it did. The investigators did not agree on the veracity of her story because the number of kidnappers did not agree with the recorded confessions. On the bridge, the men ordered Brooke out of the car, and one of the kidnappers struck him twice on the head from behind with a concrete block until he was unconscious. Yeah. I yeah, a couple times to do it. They then bound his arms with bailing wire and tied two 22-pound concrete blocks to his feet before dumping him off the bridge into the bay. The tide was out and there was only a few feet of water at the base of the bridge. The kidnappers then shot Brooke, killing him. According to Thurman's confession, Brooke struggled in the water for a few minutes and may have been able to free himself from his bonds. After they had tossed him over the north side of the bridge, he moved south under the bridge against the prevailing current. Thurman also stated Holmes was the first to shoot at Brooke, but Thurman shot him after he had drifted under the bridge. After leaving Brooke in the bay, they stopped approximately one mile from the eastern end where they discarded an extra concrete block and a roll of wire which were recovered after the confessions. A few hours later, they placed the first telephone call to the Hart family demanding 40 grand for Hart's return. Two men scavenging for wood in the bay, Cal Cooley and Vinton Ridley, heard screams for help approximately 725 on the night of November 9th when Brooke was kidnapped and tried to rescue him, but were hampered by muddy conditions. The two said the cries for help came from the bridge near the shore of Almeida, but added they did not hear any shots that night. Local newspapers reported that Holmes and Thurman had met with psychiatrists and would attempt to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. That Thurman trick never works. He had been crazy for more than a year since his sweetheart married another man and Holmes oh. planned... Okay. Holmes planned to repudiate his confession, which his attorney claimed 
had been forced from him by third-degree methods, including threats to turn him over to the mob for lynching if he did not confess. Upon learning of rumors of a possible insanity plea on the part of Thurmond, law enforcement authorities directed two psychiatrists from Agnew's State Mental Hospital and Santa Clara to examine the two men to preclude such a defense. Following cursory examinations in their cells at the Santa Clara County Jail, with a mob outside in the jail courtyard, both men were declared sane. Police officers from Santa Clara, San Mateo, and Alameda counties began searching the bay around the bridge, hoping to find Brooks' body. Trace evidence, including stains on the bridge, blonde hair on a brick, and other markings convinced authorities that confessors had truthfully described the sequence of events, including dumping Brooke. The first physical clues were unearthed on November 18th. Two 22-pound bricks and a pair of bloodstains were found at the bridge. The pillowcase used to mask Brooke during the drive to the bridge was discovered, along with his hat, by November 20th. The discovery of the hat ended the last hope of the family that Brooke would be found alive. A hook-studded apparatus was used to drag the bay with no success. A weighted dummy was planned to be dropped from the bridge on November 21st in an attempt to see where it would float. Workers constructing a pier of the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge reported seeing a body floating in the water during the night of November 22nd, prompting a search by Oakland and San Francisco police boats, including the shores of nearby Good Island. Alex Hart announced a $500 are equivalent to $11,300 in 2022, reward on November 24th, hoping to, quote, enlist the aid of the public in the search. By that time, the search involved a blimp from Sunnyvale, police boats from Oakland and San Francisco, United States Marines, and a hydraulic pump to dredge the mud from underneath the San Mateo Bridge. The official search for Brooks' body ended on November 25th, right in time for Thanksgiving. The next day, two duck hunters from Redwood City discovered a badly decayed and crab-eaten body approximately half a mile south of the bridge. Brooks' body was identified by the coroner and his friends and employees later that day, with several personal effects with the body matched to Brooks' known possessions. According to the autopsy, Brooke had died from drowning, and there were no bullet wounds found. Because of lynch threats, because there, you know, there's always a lynching involved, Sheriff Emig moved Thurman and Holmes to the Potero Hill Police Station in San Francisco for safekeeping soon after their arrest. A San Jose newspaper ran a front-page editorial branding Holmes and Thurman human devils, and called for, what? Mob violence. Upon their return to the San Francisco jail from questioning, cries of, lynch them, were heard from the crowd surrounding the jail. On November 21st, Holmes and Thurman remained in the jail, and fear of vigilantism led authorities to announce they would be held indefinitely. Reportedly, 20 influential friends of the of the Societally prominent Hart family, socially, God, why did I mess that word up? 
the socially prominent Hart family, excuse me, had formed a committee to insist upon immediate and drastic punishment of the prisoners. Prosecutors declined to seek grand jury hearings and feared that an indictment would incite vigilantes. Despite these fears, the pair were indicted on charges of extortion, using the mails for extortion, and conspiracy and were returned to the San Jose jail the night of November 22nd. On November 23rd, California Governor James Rolfe announced to shocked reporters that he would refuse to dispatch the National Guard to protect Thurman and Holmes. His exact quote was, Gentlemen, you're on your own. Upon payment of ten grand, which is equivalent to two hundred twenty-six thousand dollars today, ten grand cash, an astonishing sum in nineteen thirty-three by the father of Jack Holmes, San Francisco attorney Vincent Hallian agreed to represent his son. Thurman was defended by J. Oscar Goldstein of Chico a volatile mob growing day and night outside the jail on November 24th. Hallian called Rolf and asked that he call out the National Guard should an effort be made to lynch his client. Rolf retorted that he would um, pardon the lynchers. Once again, his statement, gentlemen, you're on your own. Authorities expected trouble if and when the missing body was found. After the discovery of Brooks' body on Sunday, November 26, word went out immediately throughout Northern California. All day Sunday and into the evening, radio stations issued inflammatory announcements that a lynching would occur that night in St. James Park in San Jose. Crowds began to gather outside the jail at around 11 a.m., shortly after local newspapers had run extra editions announcing that Brooks' body had been found. Sheriff Meg preemptively ordered the erection of an improvised barricade of parked automobiles and trucks to protect the jail. It ain't gonna work. Nope. By 9 p.m., a mob estimated by the press to range anywhere from 5,000 to 15,000 men, women, and children were jammed into the park with an estimated 3,000 vehicles left on streets nearby. Governor Rolfe was in regular telephonic communication with Raymond Cato, whom he had appointed to head the California Highway Patrol. Cato was in, in the home of Rolfe's political ally and neighbor in the mountains west of San Jose with an open phone line to the jail. Although the crowd was characterized as good-natured earlier in the day, Periodically, there was an ominous chanting of 11 o'clock. I, I, I have a question about this. Do you think they were tailgating? Of course. <laughs> At approximately 9 p.m., Rolf canceled a planned trip to the Western Governor's Conference in Boise, Idaho, to prevent his chief political rival, Lieutenant Governor Frank Merriam, from calling out the National Guard to stop the lynchings. At approximately the same time, the crowd began demanding the jail surrender homes in Thurman. They responded to the refusal by moving the improvised siege barriers aside. Sheriff Meg contacted Rolf at 10.30 p.m., asking that the National Guard be deployed to protect the prisoners. Rolf refused. The assault on the jail commenced at approximately 
Guess what time, boys and girls? 11 o'clock. Oh, yes. Gentlemen, you're on your own. By midnight, thousands had gathered outside the jail. The sheriff's deputies fired tear gas into the crowd in an attempt to disperse them. However, as usually happens, the crowd became angrier and larger. After the first round of tear gas was launched into the crowd, the nearby construction site at the post office was raided for materials that were first thrown at the jail. Later, a battering ram was improvised from a heavy pipe. The MIG ordered his officers to abandon the bottom two floors of the jail where Thurman and Holmes were being held. Literally on your own, dude. <laughs> it was later noted that both cells had been occupied by other notorious murderers. The MIG also had ordered that no police officer would be allowed to use their guns or clubs to defend the jail. A MIG, his nine deputies, and eight state patrolmen were all beaten, choked, and are trampled during the course of the riot. And where have we seen that before? Oh, you're right. I mean, you got the governor going, nope, not going to mm -hmm. do it. Nope. Send out the guard. Nope. Ain't going to happen. The mob, by this time estimated at six to 10,000, other reports say, you know, three to five, they stormed the jail, took Holmes and Thurman across the street to St. James Park and hung them. Afterward, Deputy Sheriff John Moore stated, I never knew human beings could go so wild. They were not human. They were animals. Deputy Moore was choked twice during the lynching. Once when he refused to surrender the keys to the jail cells. And another time when he refused to positively identify Holmes for the mob. Some women in the mob were alleged to have encouraged the violence, obviously, seemingly forgetting that their prior advice to the law to let the law take its course. Child movie star Jackie Coogan, a friend of Brooke from Santa Clara University, was reported to be one of the mob that prepared and held the rope for lynching. As a side note, I've also visited his grave. And he's at the same cemetery with another connection with the same one as Sharon Tate. Jackie Coogan. Uncle Fester. Yeah. And the Coogan. That was like, da -da -da. stole all his money as a kid. Yeah. Right. They, they, yeah. His parents took his money. That's where they invented our past Coogan's law. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thurman was the first to be lynched. He was dragged from the jail head first. The mob beat him and knotted the rope around his neck. One man attempted to stop the lynching. One man who attempted to stop the lynching was picked up bodily and hurled almost over the heads of the crowd. How much you want to bet that man was a, a reverend? Oh, I'll say, my fellow man, this is what. After Thurman was hanged, the mob tore his trousers off and souvenir hunters fought over the scraps. Holmes cried, you're making a big mistake. I'm not the man you want, as he was lynched. Harold Fitzgerald described the scene in an Oakland Tribune article, a concerted poll, and the white, blood-streaked body of the second of Brookhart's murderers swayed in a grisly rhythm in the light of a rising half-moon, a roar mingled with women's screams, rolled across the park, 
the crowd began pouring out of the park. Some did serpentine dances in the street. Snatches of songs came from here and there in the multitude. The bodies of Thurman and Holmes were left hanging for approximately 45 minutes until they were cut down by police officials. Thurman was buried in an unmarked plot in Oak Hill Memorial Park on November 29th, the same cemetery where Brooke had been buried on November 27th. Holmes was cremated at Oak Hill on November 29th. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, on December 2nd, after a special meeting of the city council, her testimony in support of leaving the cork elm tree as a monument and warning to evildoers, the council approved the cutting down of the tree by city workers. Police were required to keep off a crowd of souvenir hunters seeking a twig or branch of the infamous gallows tree, the bark and lower branches having been hacked and stripped for mementos. And that, folks, is our story. I was just like looking him up on Find a Grave for Brokar. Yeah, he was pretty good looking. I, I was told he was a good, good looking man. Well, I saw the picture, and yeah, he was. Mm -hmm. And he, one of his, his brother, Alexander, he just died in 2010. Oh, wow. I mean, he was. Like thirteen, when Brooke was kidnapped. But yeah, wow. I don't know Kid kidnapping stories. I I like them. I mean, I was kidnapped myself, so there's a, there's an affinity there. But like like I said, in the thirties, there was this period where kidnapping was the rage. You know, kidnap. Hold them for ransom, get the ransom, return the body. 95% of the time, that's how it went. You get that 5% like the Lindbergh baby, um, Leopold and Loeb, well, they intended to kill him no matter what. And his brother, Alexander, mm -hmm. he, um, he named one of his sons, Brooke. Oh, nice. Yeah. Now, um, I think the store kept on for years. Um, I want to say the store kept on for quite a few years. I think AJ took over. But, you know, who knows? I when the, I'm a I let my mom borrow my Bonnie and Clyde book. I need to get it up here so I can um, actually do you know, get Bonnie and Clyde covered. Yeah. You saw the and cover. The movie, oh, Fury, um, starring Spencer Tracy, was actually um, based on the kidnapping too. Oh, nice, nice. Like a little bit, of little fun facts. Also, the Coors um, kidnapping. Oh, okay. And, and we're coming up with, I said, like, modern times, which is not very modern now. Uh, the um, Exxon. Um, there's, I mean, I, I'm kind of interested in the uh, J. Paul Getty the third. Yeah. Kidnapping. Because in that one, his grandpa was like, nah, I ain't paying it. 
the Sydney resale. It, that was April 29th of 97. I remember when that happened. Um, but yeah, that'd be right. Well, I mean, there's no, I, yeah, he survived. So, right. Well, still, I mean, even if they survived, I yeah. know I was just looking up something the other day of the uh, about the Adam Walsh kidnapping. And, um, that's one that I want to cover. I mean, there's just so much now that I that you know, taking taking you on as a co-host that we've just kind of opened up everything, open it up to just more than serial killers. Well, you could kind of like cover a lot too, but yeah, just keep that um as all right. I know I um. Yeah, because I definitely clearly remember the Exxon kid, I think. I, I don't remember that one. I, I Well, you're a little busy. You're getting ready to go to Greece and all that. Was the spring of 92. Okay, yeah. I was, I was over in the land where democracy was first formed. Yeah, and I was in middle school, so. <laughs> but we're going to wrap this one up, folks. Um... I'll put one out next week. Next week, I will be... I I have some saved up. Okay. Yeah, I, I actually have a, sh a few shows saved up, so I will put one out, out next week, but I will be out I will be out visiting Monica. We will re be recording a special... Well, not really special. Well, it's the one-year anniversary for Monica. She picked the type. She picked the subject. Well, actually, it's a little over year now, too. Right, but I mean, yeah, it was. I wanted, to, I wanted to hold one for when I came out to visit. Oh well, yeah, it makes sense. But yeah, technically, it's like March was a year. Right. We're just—I'll be out in Jersey having some fun, seeing Monica. I'm probably going to—I'm probably going to have to swing up in the Philly and get a get a cheesesteak before I head back east. You can get one here too. But but are they, you know? Right, but are they like Philly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Better. Yeah. No, go to like Geno's and get like a tourist one instead. No. Yeah. Exactly. So. No, I'll I'll go hit some neighborhood dive like uh like a good person. Very good. All right. You know where to find us, folks. Podcasting apps, rate and review. Please do. Um, Facebook page, join the stand for killers, cults, nut jobs. I'm Scotty J. Say good night, Monica. Good night, Monica.